You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is Paul Gilleary. Paul, it's, it's come to my attention that one of our dear listeners and patrons has reached out directly to Mendocino County's own Anderson Valley. Is this happening? Brewing company. Is this happening? The Winter Solstice beer may become the official beer of the podcast, and uh, I don't want to alarm anybody, but I have, I ran out. If you knew, if you listened to the last episode, I, I drank my last beer at the last episode. Um, I now have 63 more new beers. Oh, you went big time. I went big fly. So um, You followed okay. in the footsteps of your Lord and Savior. I did. I did. I, and I feel great about it. It's a great purchase. <laughs> Went to Pasadena, cleared them out. Went to Trader Joe's in Studio City, cleared them out. We're good. All right. Well, we 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 have we might have some guests that we could share these beverages with. Virtually speaking, virtually, of course. course right now, uh, you know, it's it's the time of the year where you gotta you gotta share. Um, you really got, it's better to give to the, than to receive. So why don't we give the listeners more than just us, Paul? This week we're going to talk about our favorite slash best. It's always who knows what that means. Songwriting duos, and we'll explain what that means as we kind of go through this because it's a little gray. Um, songwriting duos, is it two guys? Is it two guys doing music, one guy does the lyrics? What is that? So we'll discuss. And with us to do that, semi-regular guest, one of our favorites from the Skyscrape Red Mosquito forums, Stip. Thanks for having me back. Excited to try to figure out what we're talking about. Oh man, it's going to be great. Unprepared step is always the best step. <laughs> and back for round two, maybe one of the podcast favorites, I think, judging by the people who responded to the episode. It is a renowned artiste <laughs> from uh, Artillery Design. It's Brad Clausen's back. Hey. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm curious to see how this conversation will unfold. Well, I'm going to tell you, Brad, how it's going to unfold. But halfway <laughs> through this podcast, Jason and I are going to very covertly undermine the two of you <laughs> to, pre- to, to prevent a uh, widespread poll amongst the audience from emerging that essentially petitions the two of you to replace the two of us. Mm. So, <clears throat> so just, just, just be prepared for that to happen. Okay, Just, just bow out gracefully. 2023 <laughs> is going to be the ultimate replacement, you know? I, I am prepared to lose well. <laughs> Keep waiting for that. I'll wait for that moment to happen. Okay, good. Uh, so best slash favorite songwriting duo. What the hell does that even mean? So originally when I was thinking about what this, what this was, and, I, and by the way, I, I was looking at my notes as we want to do and, and looking at the different topics, topic ideas that we come up with on our shared note. And one of them was best songwriting duos and it got me thinking like yeah what 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 does that even mean like you have eddie who writes 95 percent of the lyrics okay but what about the music and how equal is that to the success of a song so is it could it be where it's just the two songwriters because the lyrics are maybe less so less important who, who knows what that means so we're going to kind of 
just have a free-flowing conversation of what we think might be the most important, let's just use that, most important songwriting duo and what each of us thinks of when we hear that phrase, because that'll define what we think of as the best duo that songwrites, right? Songs, songwrites. Mm-hmm. I want to start then with Stip. Stip, I want you to tell me, just based on this information and you know the, the brief that I gave you a few days ago, what does this mean to you? How do you get there? And what do you think it is? I think it depends what you're looking for. Um, if we're we're striking lyrics, I part of me feels like even though if we're not going to talk about them as part of the the duo, the songs after the the initial stone demos were written with the idea that Eddie would eventually sing them. And so I feel like a lot of 10, even though that's many of my favorite songs, shouldn't necessarily even be a part of the conversation Ooh. because they're songs that were written independent of their final destination. Um, you know, everything after 10 is written somehow with Eddie's voice in mind. And I feel like, you know, that's one of the reasons why the writing may may change after that record. Um, I think if I had to... I'll, I'll pick three things. Um, I think in the early period... Um, well... No, that's factoring in Eddie as a lyricist. Um, you you can remember it, the okay definition is then, up to you. Then, if definition is up to me, in the early period, the first two records, maybe I think probably Eddie and Stone. In the the later run of songs, I think actually Eddie and Mike are my my favorite combo. Um, Post Vitology, when there's also just a lot less collaborating amongst them in general. There's a lot more individual songwriting. That duo has Present Tense, Brain of Jay, Faithful, which is not a song I'm crazy about, but many people are, Given to Fly, Marker, Comeback, Force of Nature, Mind Your Manners, Sirens. Uh, you know, if I was going to go through a list of my uh, my favorite latter period songs, that's, that's quite a few of them. Um, but I think Stone and Jeff probably write the most interesting songs together. Uh, just thinking about, uh, you know, like an album like Lightning Bolt. I think the last time the two of them collaborated outside of the whole band together, that had Infallible and Pendulum. Mm-hmm. But, but if we're going strictly off of batting average and the consistency, Jeff and Mike wrote two songs together, according to the spreadsheet, uh, Ledbetter and Tremor Christ. And that's batting a thousand. Uh, I have uh, State of Love and Trust on there as well. Oh, well, they, see, that just got even better. So I <laughs> yeah. guess... You know, it's not a whole lot of output between them, but I would say Jeff and Mike to to start. What what really struck me going through this is that honestly, their best writing is when they're all writing together. Yeah. If you look at at the whole band songs, we could circle back to that at the end. Skip, you kind of just cliff noted the entire conversation. I was hoping we could build to that moment, <laughs> but you kind of just. Uh, <laughs> Did the thing where, like, I just, by the way, slight tangent, but it's totally, it totally makes sense to the conversation. I know that White Lotus just ended its second season and people are going apeshit for it. No, don't blow this for me. I have yet to see the I, second season. So I have not watched anything until a couple nights ago. We, we watched episode one. And it the, uh, the cold open, essentially, of the show is the end of, because it, it's basically a week. The, the six episodes are a week. Uh, of all these people at this hotel in Hawaii. They the started episodes. it with the end of season one? No, no, no. Season The first ep- episode, season one, episode one, starts with the end of that week. 
Right. And then the, the opening credits happen and you jump to the beginning of the week and see how the whole thing unfolded. That's how season one unfolds, right? Right. So when Stip says to me that the best songs are the ones where they all contribute, maybe that's where we're going. But let's find out how we get there. So Brad, when you hear that, when you when you read the words that I typed to you and said, okay, best songwriting duo, what the hell does that mean? How does it factor in lyrics? What did you think? What do you think now after Stip did his whole spiel there, which I loved? What is it? What does it mean to you? Uh, well, I, I have a, I have a, certainly a take on it, but I think uh, that was an interesting point that I hadn't thought up that Stip brought up, which is that at pre you kind of you could potentially say you have to exclude ten because they would write with Eddie in the room from that point on, and he would be much right. more, and his voice would be much more of a contributing factor, that baritone and that his, the, the, now that they have this guy and like, okay, we, you know, so that's an interesting component that I hadn't thought about in, in that aspect. But um, it's something I think about all the time, actually. It's interesting. You think about like Lennon and McCartney and, or even mm-hmm. like you can go to other bands. Like I think a Radiohead, like um, Johnny Greenwood and Tom York to me, I always thought were like, that's the Lennon McCartney of Radiohead, but they've had individual projects now and Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are doing their own thing. And it's not necessarily as great as I thought it would be. It's interesting and it's cool, but you realize what that chocolate and peanut butter formula is of all these bands that are really big and that it's tough to remove certain elements from that whole writing process, especially when everybody's probably at some point when they're young in the room, I think part of the problem gets to when they get older and they start writing separately. And so, and then once they get older, they're all really, they're much better at their instruments. They can bring whole pieces. They can bring whole finished songs in like with drum parts and, and stuff like that. So it's not so much like they're like, Oh, I got this riff. And they, they could say they wrote the song, but then the whole band contributes to other different, you know, they all write something new off the thing. It's, it's, it's sort of a weird nebulous thing about who wrote like an entire song. Um, but I think, in my opinion, um, I always think that it's probably Stone and Jeff that are sort of the bedrock of of what Pearl Jam is, just because you know they were they played together in other bands and they they formulated that sound and they got used to each other and writing and probably you know really refined their process that really would become what would be what would be Pearl Jam sound. So, in in my opinion, I think they're they would be the duo that I would I would think are the sort of the core of the thing but i also would my finishing thought was looking at the chart when it's more of the contributing when it's more of the band in those earlier records you can see that there's more bars where it's on your spreadsheet that there's like oh there's more of people contributing and then when you get to the later records it's scattered where it's individual writers you know so i feel like when they're all together in the room that it's it, that's the best of it is when they're all present and when they're all there. But if I had to nail it to two, I would give it to Stone and, and to, to Jeff just because I feel like they're they're sort of the the, the foundation of the the entire thing, in my opinion. So you've got you got songs on that first record where they, according to this, and this is just compiled. This is like a curation of what we found online. So who knows exactly how accurate this is? But this is what we're going to go off of. You've got oceans. Garden, deep, release, wash, um, alone from the first era where they were both credited. Otherwise, mm. it's one or the other. Right. Yeah. Um, and then only a couple songs from verses. You got dissident and indifference, and then it gets real 
it kind of thins out as you go. So I wonder, um, a few tracks on, on Vitalogy, but one of those is Foxy Mops. That doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> as much as we want it to. <laughs> Stip. <laughs> I know how much you love that song. Um, yep. Song in quotations. So then Paul with, you know, I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is to say Jeff and Stone because of the, of how big the first couple of records are, especially Ten, and and they have that 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 uh, history of playing together, as Brad suggests. But then, like, how do you um, how do you weigh that to what Stiff said, where it's like, well, those songs were written without Eddie. How do how do you how can you really combine those with the rest of the catalog? Well, it's an interesting. It's an interesting qualifier because there are multiple occasions where Stone has been on record as essentially saying he, he Eddie is his muse mm-hmm. and that he writes music essentially for Eddie. Um, I think that there was a paradigm shift within the band when Eddie came on board in the sense that with Andy, Andy was this dynamic stage presence, this dynamic force as a songwriter. But I don't know necessarily if the guys felt like we need to write music for Andy. I feel like Andy was a unique singer-songwriter in his own right. The guy could sit at a piano and uh, and, and compose and, and, and do some really, really unique, innovative things. And he was very theatrical and eccentric and eclectic. But with Eddie, I feel like Eddie morphed into something when he joined the band and the band in turn became so much bigger than I think the guys ever dreamed they would even be with Andy. And it was a crushing moment for them to lose Andrew Wood. So for them to end up with a singer that actually not only can replicate the success that they were experiencing, because remember, you know, with, with Apple, they, they had a record deal and that's a big, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And to lose your front man, to come back, end up with Eddie and find yourself not only replicating the success that you have, but catapulting yourself into a stratosphere that is beyond your wildest dreams. That completely changed the songwriting dynamic. And we started to see Ed take over a more prominent role in that process with each subsequent album after 10. It's not just that, though, because if you think about, I mean, all of that is true, but if you think about the songs on 10, it's for the most part not hard to imagine uh Andy Wood singing them. They feel different, but there's a, a there is a theatricality to 10 that Eddie tamps down just by virtue of of his power as a singer. I would agree with you, Stip. I mean, if you listen to a song called like Bone China, for example, Mother Love Bone song Bone China, it it has a feel. Uh, in some ways, to some of the stuff that you would hear during the 10 era and the verses era, something like Hard to Imagine, for example, in a lot of ways, musically and sonically, sounds like a sister song to a song like Bone China. So I, I don't disagree at all. I do think that, in, and, and to, to, to piggyback off that idea, I mean, it was a demo of songs that they essentially mm-hmm. sent Ed's way. So the, those songs in the hands of, of a talented singer could have come out a variety of different ways. And Footsteps is a great example where, where you hear Chris sing and answer. Footsteps in times of trouble, yeah. Right. So without question, I think that plays a role. But 
there's a certain moment in the band's history. I think early on in the band's history, it's hard to argue that Stone and Jeff as a duo aren't the essential kind of defining duo, so to speak, when it comes to the the writing of, of the music. But I think as each band member starts to grow more comfortable in his own skin, and as the band starts to change, that the dynamic shift where Eddie t- takes on more of a leadership role within the band, and Stone kind of sees some of that away. When you start to see guys showing up to recording sessions with material, and they start sharing what they have, and the collaboration becomes either everybody at once or a couple of guys working together, but far more less frequently. I think you have to look for those certain shiny moments on an album. And, and you know, Step, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said Eddie and uh, and Mike, because specifically on Avocado, there are some what I would say real crowning achievements well, in songwriting. Present tense as well. Yeah. Yes. I think that that could be argued as, as, as a signature moment on um, No Code. And I, I think two of the strongest outputs on Avocado are, are the last couple of tracks. And mm. uh, when, when you look at Comeback and, and um, you look at uh, Inside Job. Well, Inside Job is just Mike. I, I, we have the spreadsheet here. I really? could have, it is a Mike song, but I think Eddie contributed Did something more. More than uh, lyrics. Did I you mess this up? About, I never thought about hard to imagine being that. I could totally hear Andy Wood that being a song that, like, in the, no, I was going to say, like, in the way that how different footsteps is, you know, yeah. you feel, when you have yeah. two different singers singing, it'd be a t- it becomes a totally different thing. It's the, you know, it's the same thing with like um, playing guitar myself. If you bring a riff to three different drummers, you get three different vibes and rhythms, mm. then it changes that whole song around so that's what i think this is the hard part about like who's when they Mm -hmm. contribute writing to one person at times where i think like i know when they sit alone and they do write something that's their thing but like if it's a jam and they're in a room together i mean that's that's all of them i think i think with that though you think about other bands who write certain ways where uh sometimes the guy who brings in the riff then kind of it almost dictates what the drum beat's gonna be sort yeah. of thing like you look at you are for example that's very dependent on i mean he obviously matt wrote the guitar riff with the drum synthesizer but it doesn't work without his drum beat and the same thing could be the other way around if you write a riff like hey this is only going to work if you play a drum beat like this and yeah. if they all like that then great but like that's maybe why you have certain songs that are only credited to a certain person and yeah on our, on our spreadsheet it does have ed is musically involved well, it's on Wikipedia job. as well. I mean, I'd, I'll look for another reference here, but uh, no, that's I, I believe you. That's that's news to me, though. I thought that was just Mike. Honestly, for a long time, so did I. But uh, apparently, Ed contributed in some capacity here. But uh, I do. I mean, it, when you hear them play the song live, Ed often attributes this to to Mike. It's a Mike song. Um, but Ed, Ed Ed apparently is is credited here. So I I think there are enough credits here between these two guys that in the latter part of their career yeah, from no code on at least, which is more mid to latter. But uh, I, I would say that as a duo, those two have produced some really, really standout moments in terms of songwriting composition. You uh, know, post Vitology, they may have the most total collaborations too. It's Eddie and Jeff or Eddie and Mike uh, stone just, ends up writing less and less at least as the principal songwriter it's, it's hard it's hard to think too about like the the idea of like the songs versus the 
the music and the lyrics separately or the lyrics and the music together because i mean so many of the songs like and again like that footsteps example somebody might think footsteps is better than and is it it's time to trouble isn't that the cornell version yeah yeah, yeah. um depends on you know you know what you what you what you do with it um i totally just love my train of thought there I, I just I did. Know, a, I know what I'm saying. Carry on. Well, <laughs> while Brad's, uh, I'll, I'll see. Yeah, I'll find it again. It does. I I just did a little bit of math here, and it looks like Eddie and Mike are the most prolific of the combos uh, post phytology, which I would not have guessed. Nor would I. Now, now, when you say uh, combos, is that? I guess what combination of the combo is just just, uh, just two folks collaborating on a song together. Um, Sure, but is it how many of those does Eddie contribute the music with Mike versus Mike doing all the music and and Eddie doing all the lyrics? I'd, I'd have to. I, I made a separate spreadsheet that's conflated the two, so I, I don't know. That's um, some of these. My I think are just. Well, the reason why Mike I say that is solo. because my my original, like I said, my original gut was like, okay, it's got to be Stone and Jeff. And then as I was looking at this chart, I'm like, you know what? It feels more like Ed and Stone. And to your in Paul's point that that Stone calls Eddie his muse. Now he said that two three years ago, and but you know he probably felt that way for twenty five years. Um, and so I was going through and looking at the songs that they have been, but basically the only two guys involved according to all this. Once even flow alive, black footsteps, animal daughter, hold on, hard to imagine, spin the black circle, Satan's bed, do the evolution in hiding. Life wasted, parachutes amongst the waves, supersonic. Let the records play. Bush leaguer, all or none. A lot of those, though, are very split. Where Ed is lyrics, Stone is music, and so that kind of goes against or flies in the face of my original thought of, well, who, what two guys write the music the best together? And as we've kind of gone through this, the whole Mike and um, Ed thing kind of rears its head and goes huh yeah maybe it's that or maybe it's maybe it is stone and jeff because hell the first the first record the songs that they did or the first recording session the songs that they did where they just did the music together by themselves and they could have been written without any specific singer in mind and still they are that damn good i mean obviously eddie is an amazing singer but like the music is so good that maybe it could have been somebody else and it would have been just as powerful it's hard to it's, say. It's you know what what's striking is when you boil it down to just the two, and especially if you if you strip away Eddie's lyrical uh, contributions, they don't do a lot of writing together. No, they don't. after ten for for a band that's got mm-hmm. eleven albums and sixty you know B sides and non album tracks or whatever it is. Um, what's also striking, you know, looking at the spreadsheet is how quickly even i you could argue as soon as verses eddie became the the dominant not only just the dominant voice in the band but if you're looking at just like solo writing credits how many of their best songs are are just him oh especially Uh, on vitology on without without all over the place but but even prior to vitology um rearview mirror uh, porch rearview mirror elderly woman i mean Uh. I, on a catch me on the right day, I might tell you that those are the you know three of the best songs on those two records. Well, and and uh, it's not one of my favorite songs, but Better Man's probably one of that. Uh, he wrote that when he was a teenager. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. So, 
Um, but I was, I was going to think I was, I remember what I was going to say is that it, you know, I, I think that is another interesting point too, the idea that being Ed and stone, because the, the, as far as the not being just the music, but the lyrics are such a key point to a song becoming a successful song. It's, you know, you can have a kind of a generic crappy music song. If you have a great hook and a great singer, it can be a huge successful hit. So if you're going to go off of like, you know, the reason why the band is, is as successful as it is, it would have to be stories about Ed and Stone, dynamic, that chocolate and peanut butter, that sort of Lennon and McCartney <laughs> sort of thing. Um, Maybe it's the, it's the, um, it was the, the, the tension that the kind of the leadership struggle, if you will, yeah. that, uh, that, that cold war in a sense that obviously played out very well, but through verses and in, in no code, you had that, that the, the pendulum swinging as it were, and then Stone being cool with that, that new dynamic, you get, you get a, through a lot of the tension, you get genius, you know, think about some of the best bands in the world and, and that ended up a lot of times breaking up. It's because you had police geniuses in a band and they couldn't agree on something, but like, well, you know, what's fascinating about this process. If you look at Jeff's contributions as a songwriter, the vast majority of them during the early stages of their career is there's a collaboration with either Stone or Mike. Eventually, you'll start to find that a lot of what Jeff brings to the table starts becoming his own music. When you start getting yeah. into a yield, yield, for sure, yeah. The vast, I mean, from that point forward, most songwriting credits that go to Jeff, there's no collaboration. It's just a Jeff song. And yeah. I find that fascinating that right around that point in the band's career, in on yield and we know how problematic the recording of no code was for jeff so i find it interesting that he deviated away from that collaborative process to some degree for a period of time and when he brought something musically to the table it was his and i'm not saying there was a reluctance on his part to open that up to further collaboration but there seemed to be almost a um a belief within the group dynamic that what he brought to the table had musically for the most part realized its own ambitions. So I don't know if we could credit that to uh, his evolution as a songwriter and the band's appreciation for that much in the same way they have that appreciation for what Matt does, or if that can also be partly contributed to how strained the recording process was during the prior album, no code. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I good. No, uh, good. I was just going to say, you know, when, when single video theory came out, we had kind of heard that, uh, because of the no code process, that things became, um, more cohesive and that the band was kind of jamming out a lot more and it felt more collaborative. If you read the Wikipedia page on yield, it, it, they go on and on about how they felt really comfortable in that setting, as opposed to the last couple of records that felt more like everyone brings in their own thing. And yet you look at the at the credits on yield and it's very very divvied up it feels very democratic everyone gets a couple of songs on the record but it doesn't feel collaborative you look at some of the best songs from those era from that middle era though and a lot of times they are the songs that have the most even if it isn't written down as as uh, a so and so song or so and so song it's the ones that we know were collaborated on by everybody you look at Gigaton, for example, might be maybe the most collaborative album they've had ever, but it was, it was a, 
a melting pot of ideas and they still decided to you know stick it to so-and-so versus so-and-so versus so-and-so do we think that that's a a mistake not a mistake but i think that's a um like a happy accident or was that intentional they, they kind of found a point where hey when we get together we kind of get the best out of our out of each other so what i wondered related to that and you know, brad maybe you you just know this from having been able to to watch some of the process firsthand when some of these credits are divvied up and we saw this on on single video theory like they're in a room figuring stuff out and yet there's a lot of solo credits and did they just become more intentional about who they decided to give credit to a song to like you know when uh you know jeff brings something like you know low light you know, which I think I think is a solo a, a Jeff solo credit. Mm-hmm. You know, did Low Light show up as a fully realized like this song is done and you are just recording your parts and we are good to go, or you know was was Low Light no less collaborative than you know say like you know the Fixer which has like five writing credits and it's just in some cases they decided to really let somebody own a song even if they all worked on it in other cases they they just decide for themselves you know what this is something that all of us created you know. yeah I, I don't i wouldn't know entirely but my my take on that would be that like something like low light i would think by the time like you know yield come, that comes out there they already have they've been successful and and are you know years into their career i think at that point they were doing sort of um fully not fully fleshed out demos but like more whole like songs like this isn't just like oh i've got a verse and a chorus okay and then somebody and then but i think that also still happens i think somebody might be like you know i have a riff but and then everybody maybe you know jams around a riff and writes a song off it but i think a lot of the times they can all play the drums they can all play their the, all multi-instrumental and so they can just they have little recording studios in their houses usually and so they just record songs and and i think um I think that's actually sort of, in my opinion, detrimental in a way to their writing process, because I think like most bands, they write better when they're all in the room together. And when it's, when it's you just a band, and like I've been playing with some friends of mine recently and we just play in his garage. And just, it's, 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 it's awesome. It's one of the, what playing live music is amazing. If you're just playing with people and you just start jamming and coming up with stuff and it just, things happen and all of a sudden you pick out a riff and you pick out a rhythm and stuff just kind of builds and it, and, it, and it's natural. And, it's just, and you have to imagine when you're, if that's the case with just super talented musicians, then anytime they get in a room together, they're going to write good things are going to happen. They're going to write amazing things. Like I'm, I'm kind of often amazed with like, I know how tool writes where like the three guys in tool, the musicians all write the album and finish it. And then they give it to Maynard to sing lyrics on. And I always think that's such a weird thing. I always think when they were probably younger, he would have been in the room with them and he might've heard a melody off of whatever, some off the cuff thing somebody came up with. And just by being present, you're like, Oh wait, that's really good. Or I, I, hear, I can hear that melody. I can sing it. So I feel like when bands separate and don't write, like they, when they, when they all write on their own, um, I think it's not as, good as when they're just there together being that collaborative thing. But I, I did hear Jeff one time say something like, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he did say something like, it's, it's like an honor or a privilege when Eddie wants to sing one of your songs, when he, when he's like, what's so if you bring in a song, but he wants to do the vocal and you already have lyrics and maybe he's just singing your song. That That is sort of like, like, you know, something that I think them as writers are, are, really pleased about when he's able to be like, yeah, let's do that. You know? And I think they, they usually do that. It seems like with one of Matt's songs, uh, 
I think Ed's such a fan of Matt anyway. I oh, think they, they love. Yeah. They want to make sure that you know anything. But then, but every time there's a Matt song, I know it right away. Like it's it sounds yeah. like a Wellwater song, and it's it's got right. his it's got his vibe to it, and it's got all his stuff. And you're like, oh, I can hear him singing on the demo. But by the way that Ed's singing, I'm like, oh, like this is absolutely one of Matt's songs. And and, and um, I like the way he writes too. But like, I like it. I like it. I like it when they're all in the room. You know, like a, a, a good example, Brad, would be, and I think the the Jeff uh, quote that you had, that you paraphrased, I think it was about uh, nothing as it seems. Because if you oh, listen, maybe, to, yeah. listen to the demo of nothing as it seems, it's sung quite differently. And to, to have Jeff say, "Wow, look what Ed did with it," but he he loved it, he loved the words as they were, but then took it another another level, is yeah. pretty pretty cool. But a song like "You Are," for example, you know. That was that is a Matt song, and yet lyrically, Ed did just enough uh, veterifying to it to bring it to the next level. And it's this amazing, amazing song, which they didn't play this year, by the way, which pisses me off. But I think it's, um, I think that that song, I think it's hard for him to play because it was based off of like a guitar pedal. There's some Zvex guitar pedal called like an Uwa or something like that, and it makes these gates. And so that beginning part, that dun, 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 it's a drum, that, it's like, a drum machine. Choppy. Yeah, I, th- I think. Yeah, it's, he well, filtered it's, it through a drum machine. Yeah. Is that what yeah. they're singing in the bridge? Like I, that ooh Are they just yeah. gaming the pedal? I think so. Yeah. Oh no, kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. I don't know that. But that's the, I, I didn't realize that was what the pedal was called. I think it probably sounded like you are. Eventually, they were probably saying ooh and then they're like, that kind of sounds like you are. So but, I, wow. But it's like a gated. It, there's some other. He, there's I don't know if there's another drum thing, but that pedal. There's something that gates and chops up that. The uh, I'm actually going to send this to you when we're done. But there's a. Um, there's a YouTube channel called Let's Play All, and it's by mm. it's this guy, this guitarist Matt, who actually is in the um, English tribute band, which had that um, lawsuit thing because they were called Pearl Jam with two M's. Oh, <laughs> um, he, he, the guitarist in that band has a YouTube channel called Let's Play All, and he teaches you how to play all these songs. And so I just looked up "You Are" one day, and he got the drum synthesizer machine. It's like a Korg something or other. And he goes, this is how you program the thing. And he punches in like, you know, all the 16th notes, the eighth notes, whatever it is, like on, off, on, off. And then you play the the things and it does it and it gates it because it's just, yeah. it's binary. And I'm like, holy shit, that's what it was. And it sounds spot the fuck on. So yeah. then to, to say, okay, I'm going to apply it to the lyric, to the vocals too. It's like, <laughs> but like, see, yeah. I, said, I think, I think, I think, I think the gated, the drum sequencer and I think the, the, the Zvex Uwa pedal, I think they do the same thing. They they just gate, they chop stuff up. So I yeah. think you could probably do it on multiple different anything that gates something or sequences something like that. But that was like uh I think that one's tough to play live. That's one of those songs where when it, you hear it live, like it doesn't stand up this great on yeah. the record. And mm-hmm. there's there's songs like that. I'm like, man, this is a great song. You can see people going to get beer. And you're like, um, <laughs> one of those, but like about Jeff's writing too, and to that point is I always thought help help was a really interesting song and they play it live and it would, it didn't sound great live. It'd be kind of like a set list killer. And then I saw them at a hand, same, same problem. Yeah. The atmosphere just isn't there. But it, it, uh, in, in, uh, at, at Safeco in 2018, they did help help and it was it fantastic. And it was, had all this dynamic, it was big and it was really interesting. And I remember being like, Oh, that song sounds excellent. It's and then they've, yeah. and, and, uh, 
I think they just dialed it in way better. And I think there's there's some songs like that where you're like they figure out how to get the recording the, to get this live. To I wonder know, how that is presence. though, because I agree. I, I have never really cared for Help Help uh, at all. No. And when they started playing it at Safeco, uh, and I, I was there with you. And I go, oh no! I turn to my wife. And I go, help, help! She goes, what? And I go, yeah, whatever. But then they, <laughs> but then it started kind of rocking. And I go, yeah, this doesn't it got sound similar. like it, it got like bigger. And, yeah. Well, yeah. you know what it is because that's it's they're not going to reproduce the atmosphere. But this comes back to I think what you were saying earlier, Brad, about the power of them all being in, in the room. Like once let's let's pick maybe like no code or yield as an arbitrary point here where they've settled into who they are as a band. You get a sense on an album like Vitology or even earlier where they're all kind of trying to play over each other almost in a way to make sure like, you know, their musical voice is heard regardless of who the writer is. And at some point in the latter half of the of of their career, and I'm a big booster of that this last four, you know, five run of of albums. I like them more than the the middle period. But there is very much a sense that the song comes in and then everybody finds their very clean groove to slot themselves in and do their their part. And you can make out everybody's individual contribution to a song in a way that if you think about a song like Immortality, you know, or Corduroy, where like Eddie is the primary songwriter, everybody is constantly doing something in those, you know, those those songs. They have this cacophonous energy you know, to them. And they also have that live, you know, which is why something like, you know, help, help. And, you know, ended up being so much, at least to me, so much more interesting live than it was on the album when they're all back in the same space and they're not just slotting in their part to somebody else's construction, but they're all actually there. They're playing together. I was just listening to the, um, the Camden boot, which was the one show I saw on, on this tour. And there's just so much energy. It's a great show. Every, it was, it was a great show, but there's everybody is just playing to be heard in a way that was present on the early records, regardless of who wrote the songs and is maybe less present in this latter half of their career when they're in the studio, not live. As we kind of wind this conversation to a, to a close here, I, is is it ultimately that while there are duos, the first part of the of the career where it's maybe it's Jeff and Stone, and then maybe it's it's a a budding of of Stone and Ed, and maybe it's it's Ed and Mike for a while. I feel like yeah, we all kind of agree probably that when when they get in the room together. Those are the songs that that find the life now. After all this time to marinate for thirty one years, I mean, I made a steak tonight. It was marinated for a few hours. It was delicious, better than if I just threw it on the fucking grill, right? <laughs> so, out of the bag. So you know, when we think about Gigaton, and for me, I know that there's individual song credits on there, but it had the feeling of these guys all over the last seven years, whatever it was. They got in and jammed on people's ideas to a point where, yeah, that's a Jeff song or this is a Stone song, but like you get the flavors of everybody a lot more prominently than maybe you did in the middle 18, 20 years. Am I crazy to think that? I wonder how much. No, you're, it definitely sounds like that, but it also is, in, in some ways, it's almost looking at the credits, the opposite, except for Seven O'Clock and Dance, it's almost exclusively 
solo credits. Yeah. And so yeah. I wonder how much of that is just the fact that, you know, Josh Evans found a way to mic them like they were in a, and record them like they were in a room together in a way that that run of records with O'Brien and, and Casper maybe, maybe didn't. Well, I, but they I jammed think- them out. They jammed all, the, all those things and they would do the takes maybe individually, but they, all, they were all agreed upon by everybody. True. But, but I also think that we see, I could argue that Quick Escape is one of Jeff's finest songs. I, agree I, with I, that. I, I would yep, say Retrograde sure. m- might be the best song I've ever heard Matt or uh, Mike write. I mean, I, I, I marvel to this day that he's the only songwriting credit for that song. I mean, it's it's unbelievably epic. Could uh, say that Super Blood Wolf Moon. I, I've been I felt this way for a while. They finally nailed that punk, you know. Mm-hmm. So so for yep. Eddie, at least on, on 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 an uptempo song. I think we get with Agreed. a song like that, you know, something that we, we didn't get with, with some, some earlier iterations. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, comes, then goes, same thing. We're kind of seeing a lot of these guys at the peak of their powers. Uh, and, and, and Stips, you, you've been really vocal about an album like Lightning Bolt being far, far greater than I think a lot of fans give it credit for. I wonder if we'll look back and realize just how many re- like really standout tracks were on Gigaton that just got lost on the shuffle because of COVID and the fact that they couldn't go out and tour with this thing when it first came out for an extended stretch of time. And I will add one thing too is as we go into 2023, obviously we've all read the news slash rumors slash whatever you want that they've been working with Andrew Watt at least a few different times over the over the year coming down to his studio all of them together here in LA and, and, and his process is very collaborative. It's very collaborative. It's very quick. It's very in the moment. And if, if what they, if those guys who've been marinating for 31 years, who found a new way to collaborate on gigaton can get into a room with Andrew, who is basically like a pressure cooker. He's an instant pot of music. And does does that or does that not get you excited for the next it, thing? It, they are stronger together. Uh, I think they, you know, always have been. I think the only one of them that has an individual, uh, you know, catalog of contributions that's as strong as the the collectivity is maybe you know Ed stuff, but he's also like a, a once in a generation you know talent. Um, they're they're better when they're together. They are far greater than the sum of their parts, especially musically. And so the idea of them being forced to be in a room together and, you know, write together. I mean, that's what Tenant Vitology was. And I would, you know, argue with a straight faith that those are maybe the two greatest records of all time by any band. Um, You know, obviously they're they're pretty special. (laughs) And I, I think they're capable of something that, is almost that powerful at this point. You know, the only reason I I would say maybe they can't is because there is a desperation to those records that you just can't reproduce as wildly successful, you know, uh, men pushing 60. So uh, incredibly excited. Brad, as someone who has been around the band for a number of years, or or at least was for damn near a decade, who would see how they interacted, see kind of, or overhear conversations or overhear mixes, that kind of thing. What 
What do you think is is the secret sauce? Do you do you think it is when they all kind of get in the room and kind of feel each other out, or do you think, nah, it just happens to be the best song at the right time? It doesn't matter where it comes from. What what do you think? Um, I I think for I would think, I like I was saying before. I think for any band, I think it's that that creative thing that happens when you you just pick up instruments with and you don't even have riffs you don't even have songs you just make a tone and someone's like that's a cool sound and you try and harmonize whether you try and resonate with it or somebody pick drummer picks a rhythm and you just start doing something and then that that instantaneous kind of you know there was a quote from ozzy osbourne one time we said uh the best black sabbath songs nobody's ever going to hear them because we didn't record them we were just jamming in the room we were just playing and nobody at the time they didn't record them so they're just gone and and the, the weird thing about playing music is um, you can come up with an idea for a riff. And by the time it takes you to grab your phone or record it or grab your tape recorder, or whatever it was, you might forget it and, and, or you might change the rhythm. And it's a weird, it's this weird nebulous thing where you have to like, okay, I don't want to lose this, this thing. And then, and then when you do write a song off the cuff, um, and it sounds good and everybody in the band's like, dude, we just came up with, that's a song. That's parts we changed here. We had this, we all kind of came together. You never really fully capture that energy, the essence um, when you were not thinking about it, because now once you've gone to the writing part, you're like, okay, that was a killer song. We're going to write that now. Let's now you're thinking, right? This part's going to be four times. This part's going to be. We're going to change. There'll be a bridge here. You never fully get the true energy again of that rough energy that happened when the thing happened. You know, so I think for any band, it's when they when they all are in the room together because they can all write on their own. They can all sit at home and they can write a song and they can be like, I hear drums part. I hear, I can make, this will be the drums. This will be the bass. I can, they can do all that on their own. They're all talented enough to do that. But when they're all, they're, they're, they're creative geniuses when they're all five of them are just sitting around. And, and part of that too, like you, like you, one of the points you're saying step two is like they're 60 and they're going there. Like it's not, you're not 27 sleeping on each other's couches, <laughs> you know, or the car. Yeah, you know, have something to prove, you know, and you and you have these ideals and these dreams. You've got to the mountaintop, and now you're there, and and now you have different homes in other parts of the country, and you're all separate, and you know, and so I always think that if you could do that thing with like the Chili Peppers with uh, you know Blood Sugar Sex Sex Magic and make everybody just live in a house, and even though you have kids and wives, and just be like, no, our kids and our wives, we're just going to do this for like a month, like it's camp. You know, we're going to just go to some place where all we have are engineers, people help us record and us, and we just live here. And maybe we just stay up. You know, um, I heard some quote one Led Zeppelin three, Brad. Yeah. I, I heard some, there's some quote from Ed one time who said something about having kids that like, you can't be a mad scientist anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have these hours during the day where you get to work. And I'm like, but, but that's where that, that mad scientist time is you kind of need that you kind of need to be able to chase those ideas when they arrive at three in the morning and you need to be able to be a mad scientist and you know stay up all day taking lsd and come up with the lyrics to in hiding you know well it's interesting you bring that up a lot of these guys you know their kids are getting older now yeah i mean you know eddie's kids are are showing up on a solo something like that yeah Yeah, that's what i'm saying so i wonder if we're going to start getting to a point where they do, you know, they're, where, they're where the kids masters. look and say, dad, just, <laughs> hey, listen, yeah, please, please go hang out in the cabin with your camp, buddies. Yeah. For camp Watt, camp <laughs> Watt is a, uh, is a place where, like I said, I think if they go back down there for a couple of weeks. You might get like five tracks done and then you might do, you might come back a, a couple months later for another couple of weeks, another five track. It could be that kind of, kind of environment. And I always think of this too. when, Metallica came back to do Death Magnetic. Obviously, they came. They had the whole spiel with Sin Anger, and it was like the, the comeback thing after the the whole James 
rehab spiel. And so Death Magnetic was like, okay, now we're comfortable again. We're in the groove again. What is this record going to be? This is the real next record from, from the loads. And Rick Rubin was producing it and he goes, what would you write if no one ever heard of Metallica before? This was the first thing you ever wrote. What is it that you guys are? And I fucking love that because it's like, yeah, it makes you think nothing else matters. What do we want to sound like right now? What is it that we are right now? And I feel like a guy like Andrew would get that out of them. And so that's what makes me excited because it'll force them to, even if they're not all jammed and physically into the same space for a month as Brad wishes, which I kind of agree with, <laughs> at least it'll force them to think about like, fuck yeah, what, what would I write if no one's ever heard this band before? No, they'll get, they'll have a conversation. They'll come up with it. And I think that's the exciting part. I think as we've all come to an agreement, it, it is the best stuff when they all kind of get their, you know, put their, uh, put their sauce in the sauce. So- what's, what's the metaphor the finger in the sauce. There you go. That thing. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think, I think the only thing, the only thing I would be concerned well, like I, is, is that I imagine Andrew Watt is they're going to Los Angeles. Is that where they're going? Mm-hmm. So that would just, the, the LA to me seems distracting for for celebrities and, and musicians and stuff like that. maybe maybe they're 60 the, the guy wearing a light up christmas <laughs> ugly sweater right now says no distractions here whatsoever well but I, just, you know what i feel like i feel like if you like this i have this idea of like you know if you were in a house and you didn't have your children or your wife or your spouse and you just said look i'm just going to be gone for a couple of weeks and i'm just going to go do this and you just woke up and you had some food and you had some thing. Maybe you went outside and you, and, and then you just picked up your instrument. And then, or when you woke up, you heard your friends playing music and you yeah, just remembered yeah. what it was like, like to, be a, to be a kid and to just be like, this is what we, we get this privilege to do this. Let's forget about it for like two weeks of our life. Let's just remember the, the, why this music making thing is so awesome and why we get to do it and just play whatever the fuck we want to play. And I, <laughs> the other, the other thing I think is weird though, too, is like, um, uh, for, I know for like Dark Side of the Moon for Pink Floyd, they toured that record for like a year or something. They were in clubs and they were playing and they and they familiarized themselves with those songs. And they got to a point when they went to record them in a studio that they were just dialed in most refined versions of those songs. And like that's what stand-up comedians do for mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. hour of a special. They workshop and they see what works and they fine-tune stuff. And I feel like it's weird that bands don't do that because like you could go... F- tour a whole bunch of songs and get them to a point where you're like, we, oh, we know on this song, there's a five minute jam in the middle here. We know there's a better way to build this bridge. There's a better Can way. Can you imagine if that happened? That'd be so weird. And then just have it. So for, for posterity, for history, you're like, yeah, now that's the record. And then if you want to tour it again to be like, yeah, you guys got to be there for the writing, but then but this is what it is in history. It's not this, like we write it. And then it, that's re-recorded for history. And then you go play it and then you play it for years. And you're like, oh, there's so many different ways we could have written this or we could have changed this or we could have transitioned this, but it's such a weird backwards process. Like I said, like stand up makes sense to me. You go blame the internet, try yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. See, w- <laughs> where that really makes sense for, for Pearl Jammer to do something similar to like what REM did with uh new adventures in hi-fi where a lot of it is just sound checks because at this point, as yeah. opposed to say, you know, 92 ni- to, to 95, 96, so much of their identity, like, you know, like what is Pearl jam? The, the hypothetical that you pose, Jason is bound up with the communal experience of the live show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Good they're point, always, yeah. they're always writing to chase that. Um, you know, you could see like at Camden when Eddie was trying to make like retrograde happen. Uh, and I love the the song on the album and I picture in my head, like, you know, what would it be like to, you know, be in a room and have everybody 
you know, do something at the you know end when that song climaxes, but you have to, you know, you have to get there organically. Um, and if you're doing this right before, right after you played live, you're not just locked into each other. You're locked into that that communal vibe. That's that that's so powerful. Like um, even better than going to Andrew, you know, Watts' studio, and I'm you know 100 on board with that. Would be just to drag him on tour with them for you know a couple of shows and you know spend Which an hour you, I think hours. you will i think i he think would. that's exactly what's going to happen well i like this i like the idea of of both of those things where he goes and they do like you know maybe a dozen club shows that they don't advertise and they they, they the uh, they're, they're on the marquee as yeah. what, what were they what were they in santa <laughs> you, cruz you, of course you should do the poster <laughs> yeah and you do the poster what, what were they in santa cruz was it like the, the piss bottles or something uh, like that yeah, piss, piss bottle man piss bottle man yeah piss bottle man Reunite after 20 years, wherever it's been, and come back out. Brad does all the posters for him, a limited run, just like the Neocon posters. They all have yeah. to come. Well, come think together. about like the that makes me just think of like out of my mind. Like that was just an off the cuff, yeah. right? Off the cuff gym. And that's a hooky, catchy, like, and they, and they yeah, work I, part, I, like, and I, it I changes. It has different parts and it changes and they go someplace with it. And they, that was just spur of the moment. Like from your lips to Eddie Vedder's ears. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I, I don't think we've solved anything except for the fact that we love this band. And uh, they are uh, amazing when they get together. So hopefully in this new year, as we, this is the second to last episode of the, of the, of the calendar year 2022. Hopefully next year we get some of that sauce. And I want to thank uh, Stip and Brad for coming back and uh, happy holidays, gentlemen. Uh, to you Likewise. both as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And and I just realized that uh, I I never actually saw an opportunity to undermine either one of you. So <laughs> I was waiting. Uh, I was waiting for it to happen. Lump now, of coal in both of your stockings. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you guys. My pleasure. Anytime. Oh man, those guys are great. They are fantastic. It is always a pleasure. <laughs> there I go again. Um, I have to say, you know, each one of them brings just not only unique perspective, but uh, the, the, just presence to, uh, to 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 the show. So it's it's really really a great honor to have them on. And, and I have to say, I mean, I, like uh, <laughs> we've yet to have a moment on this show, Jason, where we look at each other off air when it's done and say never again. It's no. we've been so blessed and fortunate. Anybody and everybody that we've invited on the show has been an absolute treat to host. So uh, may, may that continue into the new year. But for now, my friend, tis the season. It's time to get to the lyric of the week. And the lyric of the week this week, we're going to go back to damn near the very beginning and one of the only songs where the music was written by dave apruzis yes our love of that man continues the song is angel mine is not a celestial state with idle hymns of praise time is short i have an appointment
Paul Angel. Oh baby. It's a Christmas it's a Christmas single. How it appropriate is. for the it month is. of December. Yeah. One of the earliest. What do you make? This is the very end of the song. What do, what do you make of this part? Uh, I've always found this one to be a unique number. It, it, it's really not like a lot of uh, Pearl Jam songs from that period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song Girl, I think, is, is a heavier version, B-Girl and Girl, quite frankly, that kind of explores these unique kind of um, like candid moments in the life of a band. Mm. And for me, in a lot of ways, Angel is no different. You know, you, you, you look at a, a set of lyrics like this. Time is short. I have an appointment at noon, at noon in hell, dark line. Across the waste of space and fields of air I glide, alone at night. Please think of me because I'm by your side. Uh, and again, I, 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 I hear these words echoed later in the Pearl Jam catalog. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm by your side. Oh, I'm by your side. Right? Yep. So I, I've always found that that opening line, though, mine is not a celestial state with idle hymns of praise. I thought that was such a great kind of upending of what our preconceived notions of what an angel is. We have this, this vision. You hear the word angel and you have this vision of that. And the reminder that, you know, this celestial state, these idle hymns of praise, that's not me. That's not my fate. That's not, that's not where we're at right now. Um, but there's this commitment, this commitment to, and this, and I love that line across the waste of space and fields of air. I glide. When you talk about, you know, you're decorating your apartment, you talk about negative space and how important it is to, to have Mm. negative space. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sometimes you'll look at other people's rooms and, and spaces and they're just covered. Every space has something on it. Right. But in a relationship, we talk about the need for space and how important that is. And it's it's an interesting way to look at space as, as wasted sometimes. That there's this de- that this distance between people and it's a wasted opportunity to create a connection and close a divide. And I, I've always thought that that way of looking at space as a waste was so fascinating because of how much value today's generation seems to, to prioritize on that. Um, alone at night, please think of me because I'm by your side. It's just that this desire to, to want to be supportive, this, this desire to, to know that time is finite. And, you know, if, if, if you've had any value, if, 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 if there's any good in you that you could possibly contribute to the world, it's being there for somebody else. So I thought that, uh, there, there were some interesting talking points with a set of lyrics like this, and it's a song that I don't think gets much much attention, and nor much reflection. And I think that there is there's an opportunity here for us to kind of look at these individual lines separate from each other, and then in conjunction with each other, and draw some parallels and some connections, not only to to other Pearl Jam songs. Again, I'm talking specifically about that line on "By Your Side," but also some uh, connections between the the relationship uh divide the gulfs that sometimes so, sometimes form and whether or not that space is is actually necessary or whether or not it, it ultimately can can be viewed as is truly a waste i think that is a great way to 
um, explain not only what these lyrics are, but how they explain where they came from and how that um, speaks to how the band or really Eddie wrote lyrics from then on. And you obviously alluded to leash as an example and um, even breath. Yeah. Uh, you know, this song from my, again, from my research, this song was inspired by Ed reading a poem called the eloping angels, um, Faust and Mephistopheles switching clothes with two angels so that they could wander heaven and the angels could once again walk the earth. And this verse is, it's uh, basically there, the, each one of these lines is from this 29 page story slash poem that Ed has kind of um, paraphrased. So they're not, yeah. not exact, but he's like, he's, he's edified them um, to fit in a, in, a, in this way. And I'm not very good with old English. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, I have a hard time understanding, understanding, or I had a hard time understanding what he was getting at. But as you explained your perception of what these are, it all falls into place now. The, these two men on earth who've been pretty horrible is again, this is my understanding of this story, uh, committing every sin, ask how they can possibly go to heaven and somehow make a deal whereby they can experience heaven for a little while. At least if two angels who are in love, but cannot marry, go back down to earth to become human again and thus unite. If that's right, then how you have presented the lyrics makes sense because Ed would hundred percent would take that story and <laughs> he, think of it in the way that you described, because that's how he thought about everything at the time. That yeah. was Ed. That was Ed. And I didn't, I, I never even knew that this song was based off of that story. Or it's called the Caprice. I don't know. I don't know what a Caprice is. Can you tell me what the Caprice is? Do you know what that uh, is? Well, it's the name of a uh, supermodel. I'm, 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 I'm actually serious. <laughs> <sighs> No, in the literary <laughs> is, sense. I, I want to say she was she was a supermodel in the nineties, but the actual uh, it's like this 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 change in your mood. It's almost like a whim, like this change mm. in your mood or behavior that you really can't attribute to one thing or another. Oh, okay. So there apparently this thing was written in like eighteen ninety two or something like that, and I don't. Apparently, it's very hard to find an actual printing of this because there was like fifty of them. Mm -hmm. um, but somehow Ed found this. And this is kind of the thing that came out. And I just think about how he would have read this as a 24, 25 year old, been able to absorb it and then sitting, you know, by a campfire in the living room with Dave, just kind of noodling on something and be like, Hey, I got a little something for you here. Let me go ahead and just kind of, and they probably riffed on it to our conversations point from earlier. They probably riffed on it and then kind of meld into this thing which is Ed to a T. It's Ed to yeah. a T. Yeah, it's interesting it. what these two guys were capable of. You know, imagine. Uh, I know it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's really really. I, I think it's great, actually. You know what I'm saying? I not not all things were meant to survive the test of time, but it's <clears throat> it's always good to look back at what really worked when it worked, and to appreciate that and to highlight that because why not? I mean, it, you know what I mean. We so, have to. You have to appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. You have to, and it, uh, 
like I said, tis the season, right? So the, this is go. a time to be merry and to focus on uh, all that is joyful and triumphant. And there was there that this is part of a Pearl Jam uh, period in their career that uh, was full of a lot of triumph, my friend. So let's find out our choice for the most triumphant version, live version that is of Angel in our live cut of the week. Live cut of the week, Angel. There's only six of them. Two are separated from the other four by a long stretch of time. Right. Where are we going here? Uh, I'm particularly partial to November 1st, 1992 at the shoreline. And that's where we're heading. Like I said, there there are four from '94 and earlier, and then there are two later. Um, all these early cuts sound somewhat similar. Um, it's just one vocal and one guitar. So I mean, how different can they really be? The differences are obviously going to be subtle. The performance in Portland and uh, that was the first one in Portland, and the fourth one in Chicago have really bad audio quality, so those aren't going to make the yeah. cut for sure. And then you've got Boston and Telluride from 2016. Uh, obviously, the sound quality is amazing, but we have some choices from the early days, so we have to go with those. So then it came down to Mountain View in Dallas, and, and I, I think you're right. I think Mountain View is the one, and I think 
because it's just a, an acoustic guitar and Ed, well, what do we have to focus on? We have to focus on the performance of Ed. That's really what right. it comes down to. And Ed's performance is the best probably on this one. So I think uh, I think it's the right choice. I mean, again, there's only six of them. You can listen to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and judging by um, our guidelines, it's got to be uh, Mountain View, California on November 1st, 1992. And uh, there it is. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. It was a lot of fun to have Stip and Brad both back to talk about favorite songwriting duos what the hell does that mean does it include lyrics does it not include lyrics does the singer also do the who knows it it grew into what it was meant to be similar to to a lot of pearl jam compositions exactly exactly so again uh we thank you for listening anybody who has left a review actually there is a new review i think there's Uh a new review let me read it to you a couple new patrons that we have to uh exactly express our gratitude for Thank you to our new patrons. Thank you to our old patrons as well. Um, this one says five stars. It's a great show. Here's the title from Darren 0707. Got into this podcast in the summer of 22, but now going back to early shows for years, I felt alone with my thoughts on Pearl Jam and tried to dissect songs, albums, etc. with myself. Now I get my fix with Jason and Paul sharing thoughts on my band. I also got to meet the guys at Clayton's framing last weekend. This is a little while ago. And they are true PJ fans for sure. Thanks, guys. Well, thanks, Darren. Yeah. You're a mensch. It was a pleasure. And uh, I have to say, it really means a lot to Jason and I. It's not that we necessarily are consciously trying to make every episode evergreen. I mean, I think it's a byproduct of just the way we structure the show. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's something to be said for for fans that come along and uh, folks that want to listen and say, you know what? There's enough that intrigues me for me to actually go into a back catalog yeah. and listen to more. And so f- for us, that means a lot that a lot, a lot of those conversations we had don't just die off into the ether. So uh, we, we, <laughs> we, 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 we thank you all for, for that. And uh, you know what, listen, if you go back to an earlier episode and, and you want to chime in, those conversations don't have to die there. So nope. if, if there's something that that you you hear in an earlier episode from a year or beyond ago, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media uh, and say, Paul, uh, what the hell were you thinking when you said blah 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 blah? And hold me accountable. It's time to 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 do that. I, I should be held accountable. You so. think slot of hash should be played with a symphony? Are you out of your yeah, damn mind? Right that, what, what, what? I don't remember <laughs> if you said that or not. Exactly. That was pro- I probably did, but <laughs> hundred shows ago. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I echo all of that. And, um, it is the season again. We have one more for the, for the year of 2022, Yeah, but uh, I think this was a nice chance to bring in some of our, um, some, a couple of our favorite guests. I mean, I say favorite, but you know, we, we love everybody. And I will say, as you said, um, before about love having guests on the show and we've never had a bad one and we're going to have more in 2023. And that starts, uh, in mid to late January, with our next edition of the Fan Roundtable, we are heading to Poland. Oh, boy. Poland, my friend. And uh, we already have a, a handful of fans ready to go. They're very excited. So we'll record that in the next uh, few weeks. And so that'll come out. And then we're also also working on another European nation that's a so small, a so small, but a lovely nation that is. Um, and I won't reveal what that is just yet. I will say that their favorite color is orange. 
Ah. What does that mean? I don't know. If you watch, if you watch the World Cup, maybe you know what that means. Anyways. <laughs> That is all for us this week, guys. We appreciate you, as always. If you want to write a review, that would be great. Feed that algorithm. Gotta feed it. It's hungry. It's the holidays. It it, it doesn't want Christmas cookies. No. It it doesn't want eggnog. It wants your ratings, your reviews, your subscriptions. Whatever cookies and eggnog that you would would feed yourself, feed them to me, because I love a lot of stuff. (laughs) Feed the algorithm your fine, kind words. And with that... We will all see you on the next episode, and until we do, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. State of-